And let's pray yet again, so please remain standing. Father, as we enter into the Christmas season and as we take our Bibles and we review the stories of Christmas, would you please refresh us, renew our hearts with a a renewed love for Christ and a new awe at your plan of the ages to rescue sinners. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're seated, grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3. Grab your pen and your paper with your notes if you prefer to do that. And also then, be asking yourself this question. What is the moment, what is the event that marks the beginning of Christmas? So for us at our house, it is a very identifiable event. It is when Mrs. Marceau looks at me and she says, I need you to bring up the boxes from downstairs. That is the beginning of Christmas, and it usually happens right before I head off to deer hunt, right after th- right at Thanksgiving time. I need the boxes. I know exactly what she's talking about, and there are many, many boxes. <laughs> and what do the boxes hold? They hold Christmas. All of the decorations and delights of Christmas. That marks the beginning. I imagine at your house and in your way, you have some traditions that mark the beginning of Christmas. Well, we're entering into a series here for the month of December, and we're going to be looking at Christmas stories from the Bible. This morning, I want us to look, it's actually our text is in Luke 1, but right now I want you to be in Matthew 3. I want us to begin with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are notable because they are the parents of John the Baptist. And and John the Baptist is notable because he is the one who in our Bibles marks the beginning of Christmas. He is the one who was chosen by God to announce to the world, people, it's Christmas time. Messiah has come. Now, he didn't say it quite like that. He said it a little more roughly and coarser and directly and he said something like repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand repent of your sins and he's going to come with a winnowing fork and he's going to winnow you and he's going to throw all the chaff in the fire in other words if you don't get right with god you're going to burn but really he was announcing the beginning of christmas he really was and in fact when we look at at the two accounts that specify the details of the very birth of our Lord, Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, both of them have some information about John the Baptist early on. And in fact, Luke, our text this morning, begins with the story of John the Baptist. Something else you'll be impressed with as you look at the story is how much space, how long the story is, how much ink was given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as the as the Luke the historian and Matthew the apostle wrote the accounts, they gave us a lot of information about John the Baptist. He was a very important person. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11, he said, of all the men born among women, there are none who are greater than John the Baptist. And he was speaking about his cousin who was tasked with a specific purpose of announcing his presence. Now, granted, he did that 30 years after the birth, and I recognize that when we start into Christmas, we're, we're talking particularly about the birth of our Lord, but isn't the birth of our Lord all about the cross of our Lord? 
For God so loved the world that he gave, that's Christmas, his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That includes the cross. Because why? Because Jesus came because God is a rescuer of sinners. And God came to interrupt the lifestyle of sinners. And he did it by having Messiah be born. 30 years go by with almost no information. And then three years and our gospels are filled with information from age 30 to 33 in our Lord's ministry on earth. Ending with that great event at Golgotha where he went to the cross and he did something for us, didn't he? The older theologians used the word imputation. It's the idea of, of a substitution. Jesus was born so he could grow up, so he could go to the cross. He lived a perfect life. He was God in the flesh. He alone could please the Heavenly Father and satisfy God the judge and his demands for sin. And so when Jesus went to the cross, he, he took our sin upon himself. And so when we go to the cross, we, we deliver our sin to Christ. Now, I know the physical act took place 2,000 years ago, but when have you been to the cross? When have you been there to deliver and dump your sin at the cross? And there, Jesus takes our sin upon himself, and he gives his righteousness to us. That's the word imputation. He imputes to us. He substitutes in our place and then gives us what we don't deserve. It's an amazing thing. So that by grace, through faith, when we go to the cross and we admit our sinfulness... When we ask for God's forgiveness, he takes our sin, puts it on Christ, who once for all paid the penalty, dumped it in the deepest part of the deepest sea, removed it from us as far as the east from God, as far as the east is from the west, so that we can stand before God someday, and when he looks at us and says, why should I let you into my heaven, we say this, did you notice my robe? Father, did you notice how I'm dressed today? in your presence. Oh, he'll say, it's the robe of my son, the Lord Jesus. When I see you, I see him. You've been to the cross, haven't you? And you've received the righteousness of Christ once and for all. And you're robed in his righteousness. And your sin is cast away. And he paid the penalty for it. That's the Christmas story, isn't it? That God comes and pursues sinners and gives a Messiah, a Savior. And privileged with the responsibility of announcing to the world coming out of the wilderness, this Elijah-like prophet was John the Baptist. And he says to the world, hey, everybody, it's Christmas time. And he triggers the beginning of Christmas. Galatians 4 says that God waited until just the right time in his plan to send Christ to be the Savior of the world. So we want to look at Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke 1 in just a moment, but I want you to see further in Matthew chapter 3, if you put your eyes down there at the beginning of the chapter, and I want you to notice what Matthew says about John the Baptist. It's very interesting. He says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John wore a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. 
and so forth. And then he preached and people confessed their sin and he baptized them and he prepared the way for our Lord. So I looked up Isaiah 40, verse 3, where that's quoted from. And do you know, when you read Isaiah, you can't tell who he's talking about. You read Isaiah and it says, he comes proclaiming the way of the Lord, make the road straight, take the curves out of the road. That's an old uh, preparation for a king or a dignitary to arrive into your region You want the roads to be smooth. You take the curves out of the road. You want him to come in and feel special, so you repave the roads. That was John's job, to pave the road in preparation for our Lord. And so then when we read Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Matthew 3, says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He's talking about John the Baptist. And so songwriters even write songs about that. John the Baptist, the one who announced the arrival of our Lord. I like to think that he was proclaiming Christmas. Let's go to Luke 1, and I want you to see the the really remarkable story of his birth. It was a remarkable birth. And as we review this December, the stories of Christmas... I thought it was appropriate to begin at the beginning in Luke 1. You're familiar with turning to Luke chapter 2. There we have the account of our Lord's birth. But you're going to see, even as we read and as we flip the page, you're going to see how much space was given by Luke the historian to give the account of this most remarkable birth in Zechariah and Elizabeth. We're going to read the story, then we're going to recount the story, and then we're going to apply some application from the story, and then we're going to go home and eat. Okay? We begin with verse 5 in Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, now this is Herod the Great. This is the same Herod that in Matthew chapter 2 will kill all the babies in Judea, age 2 and under. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abihah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him, Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. There it is. His job was to make ready for the Lord a people prepared for what? For Christmas. 
And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. We're going to stop there, but I want you to keep your eyes on the page. So then immediately we have the story of the angel announcing to Mary that she is the chosen one. She then visits Elizabeth. So you hear, you'll learn a little bit more about her cousin Elizabeth. So Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins. So then Mary sings her beautiful, magnificent song, verses 46 to 56. And then it picks up again, Luke does, with more account of John the Baptist's birth. And it tells about the actual birth of, our, of John the Baptist. And then Zechariah's prophecy begins. And his benedictory here, 67 through 80, it's remarkable how much print is given to the account of John the Baptist. While you have your eyes there, let's look under Zechariah's prophecy at verses 76 and 77. And I want you to see how important John the Baptist was. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Verse 76, Luke 1. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That was John's job. And I'm saying to you, that's the first story of Christmas right there. He marks the beginning of Christmas. Let's get our notes in place and let's remind ourselves of what we've just read in this story. I'm using some key words to mark our way through. By the way, I, I put those verses in your opening paragraph of your notes. I would encourage you to go and read the last half of the story this week. As you begin to prepare your heart for Christmas, read through the first few chapters of Luke. You'll be encouraged. The first thing I want you to see in the story about Zechariah and Elizabeth, though, number one, is that they were blameless. They were blameless. Look what it says. In the days of Herod, verse 5, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiha, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Telling you, these were a remarkable couple, by the way, that reminds us of the testimony of a number of characters in the Christmas story, doesn't it? I mean, we're not going to read too far in the Christmas story, and we're going to be reminded that Joseph was a righteous man, and he did what God said. We're going to read later in Luke here. If you read this week and read ahead in Luke, you're going to read that, that it's not long, and Mary and Joseph will take baby Jesus to the temple, and there they're going to find another old, old man, and his name is Simeon, and his testimony is almost identical to this, that he was a righteous man who walked with God and did what God said. I'm sure that Zechariah and Elizabeth were not perfect people, but the point is they heard the word of God, they understood the word of God, and they did all they could to walk in obedience to the word of God, and they lived a long, righteous life captured by the word blameless, I want you to note that Zechariah, by the way, his name uh, in some of your Bibles, King James, New King James, 
It might say Zacharias. Don't be confused. Zechariah, Zechariah is just different spellings of the same name. It's, his name literally means Jehovah has remembered. There's actually about 30 Zechariahs in the Bible. And it was evidently a fairly popular name at that time, which makes sense. If you were a young Jewish couple and uh, God blessed you with a son when he was born, your baby's born, it's a son. It means you're going to have a, a grand, you're going to have children, hopefully grandchildren. God has blessed. God has remembered us. God has been good to us. It was a common name, evidently. It says also, though, in verse 5, let's just kind of answer a little question about this, that he was of, of the division of Abiha, of the priestly divisions. So the temple priesthood was organized into 24 divisions. Each division served twice a year for one week. Abiha was one of the heads of the priestly divisions. It was kind of interesting when I was reading in the commentaries about this a little bit. So way back, when you go back to David and Solomon and their worship at the tabernacle and then the temple at Solomon's temple, you see, in Israel, to serve as a priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was of the priestly line. Of those, there were a number of family heads, and what they did was they identified 24 family names of the sons of Aaron. 24 units, and it made sense mathematically, it fit the year, and then these men were identified and qualified to serve as priests, and twice a year, for one week each time, they would leave their farms, leave their families, leave their homes, they would come to the temple, and there, it was their privilege to serve as the priests for that week, their group. I don't know how many people were in a group or how many priests were in a group, but there were, were many, there were many. One of the things that I found was interesting, do you remember then when Israel sins, they have a whole sequence of all unrighteous kings, and God finally tips the boiling pot from the north, and Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon come down and capture them, and then Judah is captured and taken, and this is the time of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. At that time, these 24 units of priests under these family names was all disrupted. And when they came back... After Nehemiah and so forth, when they came back, they only had four of the families identifiable that came back. But what they did was, as they had children and sons, they divided them out and they recreated the, the original 24 family groups so that even by the time of Jesus, the number of priests of the line of Aaron, back divided to their original names that were originally given back in the time of David and Solomon... Then the, and, and Abiha was one of those names. It's interesting to note then that Elizabeth is also from the daughters of Aaron, it says. And so she was of the priestly line. But of course, even as in the New Testament, God appoints elders, male leadership in the church. Even in the Old Testament, priests, only males served as priests. Women didn't serve as priests. But she was in her genealogy of the line of the priesthood of Aaron. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth were both of this line. You know, and I think that it was probably very special to be a part of the priestly line. And, and when your time came up and you marked your calendar book, that you knew that that was your week that you got to go serve, that was a privilege so they had to cover their responsibilities at home and then go serve. And so that's what's happening to Zechariah. So the first thing we see is that of their lineage, that he's a priest, 
that they were blameless. Secondly, I want you to see, though, that right away in the story, it tells us that they are childless. They are childless. Verse 7 says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in age. Now, one of the things you need to understand that at this time in Israel of old, if you didn't have children, that often meant that some people looked at that somewhat disparagingly. There's a little bit of a biblical reason, and the biblical reason is based upon um, the fact that when Moses uh, was writing the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy, when God um, was giving promises and making covenants with Israel, he told them back in Deuteronomy, and Moses recorded it, that when they got into the promised land, that one of the signs of blessing upon the children of Israel would be that they would have children, and that they would be blessed and have children. And so the way the human mind works, I guess, is that if, if God is blessing you when you have children, then it must be the converse is true, that if you don't have children, you're, you're evidently being disciplined by God. Well, God didn't say that, but that was the conclusion of the culture, and so their childlessness, their childlessness led to sadness, number three, because they were, it says in the end of verse seven, they were very old. They were now too old to have children. We also know that they were sad by this, by what Elizabeth says in her prayer. Notice that verse, flip the page to verse 25 where after Elizabeth finds out that she's with child, it says in verse 25, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to look what it says, to take away my reproach among people. This was a very negative thing for her, that she didn't have children. So we know that Zechariah and, and Elizabeth were blameless. We know that they were childless. We know that there was a sadness from this. They were very old now. Evidently, there was no hope but I've characterized the next section of this scripture with the word suddenness because this is the day when Zechariah is chosen to enter the holy place that everything changes and it changed just like that. Completely blindsiding Zechariah. So let's read on verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, so that's their week of service, this group of Abiha. Their week of division, their division was on duty for the week, according, verse 9, to the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So now what's happening? Okay, so he gets his call. It's time to go serve. One week, twice a year, 24 different groups. So each group serves twice and you covered the whole year. When they get there to serve, there's a number of duties, and it's a large group of people. It was the great privilege of a priest then, whereby Lot, somehow the high priest there, had it figured out that they would choose numbers or draw straws, and of the priests that were there serving that week, doing all of the sacrifices, dealing with the people, doing the prayers, doing everything, maintenancing everything, they would then choose one man who would have the great privilege to go out from the outer courts, like the court of the Gentiles, then the court of, win the court of women, and so forth. And then you came to a place called the holy place. And there at the holy place, which was right outside, divided by a thick curtain, we talk about that curtain at Easter. Remember on the, morn uh, on the afternoon of our Lord's death when he said it is finished, 
It tells us in scripture, in Matthew particularly, that the veil, the curtain was rent from top to bottom. That heavy curtain, they say the thickness of a man's wrist couldn't be pulled apart by teams of oxen. That's the curtain. That curtain was right there at the edge of the holy place, and behind that curtain was the holy of holies. You didn't go in there, only on certain occasions. But in this weekly service, if, if the lot fell upon you, you got to take the incense where there was fire burning in the holy place 24-7. You got to go in and offer the, the offering of incense, and it was a great privilege. And in fact, there were enough priests that many of the priests never got chosen to do this. And in fact, if you did get chosen, you didn't get to get included in the drawing again. You only got to do it one time. And so it's interesting, we know that this is a very special day for Zechariah. And we know that he was privileged to go in and offer this incense as part of their worship. And so the people are waiting out in the outer court. Let's read on now about the suddenness. Everything changes all of a sudden. The last thing in the world he had on his mind, or maybe not... It says, and there appeared, verse 11, to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and, he, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. All right, so I, I wonder, is this a prayer? I'm thinking that Zechariah might have thought like this. Wow, I got picked. My lot came up. It's the privilege of my life as a priest. I get to go offer the, the incense. It's the one-time opportunity I have. And maybe he thinks like some of us think, if ever God is going to hear my prayer, today's the day. And we don't really know the timing of the prayer based upon the way the angel Gabriel speaks to him. He says, God has heard your prayer. Could it be that this was always continually on Zechariah's heart and his wife, Elizabeth, and that it was like a prayer, God, would you just bless me with a son? I don't know how. The angel appears. I'm sure that it was a lifelong prayer, a lifelong prayer. And the angel appears, and he says, don't be afraid. Zechariah's startled, of course. And so he says, don't be afraid, verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness. You're going to name him John at the end of verse 13. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. It reminds us of Samson back in the book of Judges, around chapter 14, where his parents were told, this boy, you should never cut his hair. It's not said that, he lied, uh, that John the Baptist couldn't cut his hair. I kind of picture him being kind of a wild, woolly-looking guy when he came out of the wilderness. But it doesn't say he couldn't cut his hair. This is related to the Nazarite vow. It doesn't even say that he, had to, that, that he was committed to the Nazarite vow. Specifically, the angel told his parents, do not let this boy ever drink alcohol because he's a special guy. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit in a special way from the time that he's in his mother's womb. And if you drink alcohol, what happens? You can come out from underneath the control of the Spirit. And in fact, Paul didn't make that up, did he, in Ephesians? He looked at the church, and it's a directive to the church, just as clearly as it's a directive to, to Zach, Zechariah about how to raise his son John, and do not be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, Paul says, but be filled with the Spirit. The church is warned about ever being drunk, because then you're outside of the control of the Holy Spirit. It's a concern. And so here's he says, you raise this boy up. And so Zechariah is just totally blindsided, I take by this. 
He's going to be great. He must not drink wine. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He'll turn many to the children of Israel, to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, verse 17, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord's a people prepared for Christmas. There it is. There it is. It's interesting. But I want you to see that Zechariah is faithless. Number five, Zechariah is faithless. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? How am I going to know this? I'm an old man. You see, his doubt was based on his understanding of human limitation. He knew he's an old man. He knew the plumbing didn't work. He knew there was no way possible for this to happen. What are you talking about? How can this be? That's an interesting statement. Mary said a similar thing, only she said it with a totally different heart attitude. When the angel told Mary that she was the chosen one to bring Messiah into the world as, as his mother, remember, she said, how can this be? I've never been with a man. Zechariah said, though, how shall I know this is true? I mean, he was filled with doubt. Mary is filled with awe at the wonder of the incredible plan, kind of wondering, so what's next? How's this going to look? never doubting it for a minute. Zechariah doubts it from the beginning. And so he is faithless. His doubt is based upon human limitation. His faithlessness leads to speechlessness. So he's speechless, number six. Look what happens. The angel looks at him, and I kind of think that Gabriel raises his voice here. He says, and the angel answered him, verse 19, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Don't talk back to me. It's kind of how I kind of... And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words. So clearly, at some level, God is disciplining Zacharias with speechlessness, and he will be speechless now until John is born because of his doubt. He doubted the word of God's messenger. He doubted the word of the Lord. It's a serious thing, isn't it? He was speechless because of his doubt. Well, when you read on, he ends up completing his task there at the altar of incense, and it says the people were waiting for him. They were out in the court worshiping. You see, you have to understand, when you go in to the holy place there next to the Holy of Holies, it's a very serious and awesome place because it's the presence of God And so the priests usually didn't dilly-dally around. They did what they were supposed to do in all seriousness, with all sincerity of heart, and they got out of there lest their humanity take over and they mess up and God strike them dead. So they would go in, perform their duties, and get out. Zechariah goes in, and it's like, hey, what's going on, man? He's in there a long time. And when he comes out, he's speechless. He's signing to them, and they know that he's seen a vision And we know the end of the story, and then I want to encourage you to read the rest of Luke chapter 1. And then his wife Elizabeth did conceive five months later. Can you imagine? What what an incredible adjustment for their household. And then she says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. God has been good to me. What a privilege to be the parents of John the Baptist, the one who gets to announce it's Christmas time. So we're about out of time, and 
Number seven is gladness. The story ends with gladness, and then ultimately out of the wilderness comes John the Baptist proclaiming the Messiah has come, make the way straight. When I study, I have scrap paper on the side of my Bible, and my first step in my study is to read the text and to doodle on my paper. What's coming to my mind, I just doodle on the paper, and... And I very quickly, when I was studying this, came to the point where I wanted to write some things down that were coming to my mind quickly of lessons that we could learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth. So we're back focusing on Zechariah and Elizabeth. We just have a couple minutes. We need to go home. How do we apply a story like this? We're taking in the history and the account of the birth of our Lord. We're reviewing Christmas stories But I couldn't help but very quickly write some lessons, and I didn't have to edit them very much to add to our sermon notes. Number one, a takeaway, a lesson from the story. Sometimes God waits a long time to show his plan and his purpose. Don't you get that out of this story? Zechariah and Elizabeth were waiting a long time. Now, they were serving. They were faithful. He was of the priestly line. You know, it's interesting to me how often through the years, faithful people who are faithful to church, who I think they're good people, I'm so glad they're here, they're serving the Lord, they'll look at me and say, PV, I don't know what God's doing with me, I don't really know what I'm accomplishing, I don't know, and the purpose of God lacks clarity, and it might lack clarity over the course of a long time and continue to learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth. In the meantime, then, be faithful. Be faithful. If you don't know the purpose of God for your life, just continue to be faithful because with suddenness one day, God could bring clarity to exactly why he has you where he has you. Secondly, I want you to see that sometimes God's plan is difficult to see and understand. You noticed, didn't you, under Christmas stories, Zechariah and Elizabeth, that our subtitle is Surprised by the Plan of God. That was Zechariah, wasn't it? But sometimes, like Zechariah, the plan of God is difficult to see and understand. Look at verse 18a. And that's where he said to the angel, How shall I know this? What in the world is going on? How do I know what is the plan of God? And I would suggest to you that the plan of God is best revealed by the word from God. And ultimately, that means we're students of the book. God has spoken, study the word, and then wait. And you might wait a long time. In the meantime, be faithful, because sometimes it's uncertain and it's difficult to see what God is doing. Number three, sometimes God's plan involves old people. I thought that was a pretty obvious lesson out of the story, didn't you? I mean, clearly in the passage it says, Zechariah and Elizabeth are old. So God must use old people. And I'm looking around here, this service not as many as others, but there's a lot of old people here. Raise your hand if you're old. Yeah, you know it. You know when you're old. Raise your hand. Yeah. I'll say I'm on the threshold. (laughs) Would you be careful in your old age not to just let the strength of youth do the heavy lifting? Maybe, maybe you're more positioned in a time in your life now than ever before to be used of God. You've got the life experience. You've got some resource. You might have a little bit of time. 
I don't know how God is going to use you, but I just want you to know and I want you to pray and I want you to think that sometimes God's plan involves old people and you might be one of those old people. How is God going to use you for the rest of your life? Fourthly, sometimes God has to get our attention before he can reveal his plan with clarity. Verse 20 is where the angel says, I came from standing in the very presence of God to give you this message, and you don't believe me, so I'm going to shut off your speech. I think often in God's working in people's lives, I think of Joseph of old, for example. He's down in a dungeon. He doesn't know the end of the story. He's been betrayed by his brothers. He's been forgotten by the guy that he interpreted his dream, and the guy said he would remember to tell the Pharaoh to get him out of there, to Potiphar to get him out of there. But sometimes God has to get our attention before he can reveal his plan with clarity. Sometimes God does a work that's not easy, and sometimes that lasts a long time. I'll tell you a, a contemporary that came to my mind that is an extreme, an extreme example of this. Johnny Erickson Tata. She's 69 years old now, and she's still living, and she became a paraplegic, uh, a dramatically broken neck, totally paralyzed from the neck down, swimming in the Chesapeake Bay, playing in the waves, curls up, hits the, the bottom of the shore there, the, the sand, and breaks her neck. If you've never read her little autobiography, it's a paperback. I believe it's in our church library. You ought to read it. It's, it's totally contemporary, totally relevant. What a story of how she laid in that striker frame, 1969. Think of what, how far we've come in medical advancement since then. And she begged God to take her life. God, how is this your plan? And I don't know how it all began to unfold, but who has impacted weak and broken, needy people around the world for the last 40 years more than Johnny Erickson Tata? It's incredible. The plan of God became clear. I need to use somebody who's very broken, and obviously God's hand is in it. Paraplegics, I don't think, live that long. And God has used Johnny Erickson Tata in her limitations in a phenomenal way. And sometimes, number five, God's greatest work is going to be what he does with our children or our resources long after we're gone. Don't you get that out of Zechariah and Elizabeth? He lives his whole life. He's faithful at his church. He serves the Lord. He's a deacon. He's an usher. He might have made it to the elder board. He got chosen one day for some high calling for spiritual work. But basically, he's an old man, and he feels like he hasn't accomplished much at all until one day an angel whispers in his ear and says, I'm going to use you in a very special way, and here's what I'm going to do. You're going to have a son, and then your son is going to be the significance of your life. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? You say, well, Pastor Van, my kids haven't amounted to much. You don't know. You don't know. I know some of you didn't get saved till you were in your 40s or 50s, and you were pretty messed up, and your kids are only 16, 18, 20. So you don't know what God's going to do long after you're gone. Kind of a mega illustration of this that came to my mind was Franklin Graham. He's a rascalian. His autobiography is well worth the read. Rebel with a Cause by Franklin Graham. He's the head of Samaritan's Purse. He's also a big game hunter up in Alaska. His dad was a fairly well-known guy named Billy. <laughs> Who has reached more people for Christ than Billy Graham? Maybe Franklin. 
I would suggest that Franklin has platforms now that with technology of today, he speaks to more people at one time than maybe his dad spoke in 10 years to. And his dad spoke to an incredible countless number of people. And I love Franklin Graham. Uh, he has a Samaritan's person. They're busy all around the world in Jesus' name for help, but they're also spreading the gospel, reaching needy people. And I love Franklin Graham's testimony. I used to even think about him and pray for him when I would see him once in a while on a morning TV show, and he would talk to somebody like a, I don't know these people anymore by name, so I'll say Matt Lauer. And that's pretty politically incorrect, but there you go. And he would have Franklin Graham there interviewing. Maybe there was a big earthquake or something, and he had him on, and Samaritan's Purse was responding. And I used to love Franklin when he was talking to these people. And they would, you know, don't you think that everybody's going to heaven? Franklin would say, nope, nope. If you don't have your faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to die and you're going to go to hell. The word of God says it. It's clear as can be. Now, his dad would would speak the truth in love, but he he would really be loving and gentle. And Franklin, he's loving and gentle, but he was just like, this is the way it is. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, you're lost. And God uses him in a great way. You know, as great as Billy Graham is in his lifetime, isn't it possible that maybe his children are even the greater cause of his whole life. Now, that's a mega illustration on steroids that normal people can hardly relate to. But you don't know what God's doing in your life. What's his purpose for your life? Maybe your greatest purpose is yet to unfold, and maybe you won't even live to see what your greatest purpose was, as God takes your children and your resources, and he uses them for his glory and his plan. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and close in prayer. Would you just surrender yourself to God right now? And just say, Lord, because I'm guessing half to three quarters of the people in this room would probably say, the purpose of God for my life is really not all that clear. It's not wrong to ask God for clarity as to his purpose for your existence. It begins with bringing glory to him. And when he hasn't made his plan clear, in the meantime, just be faithful and take him at his word. And one day he's going to show it. But would you just surrender now and just ask God to use you and use your children and your resources beyond the span of your own life? all for the gospel, the building of his church, and the glory of his great name. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you for another week, should you tarry. We're reminded in the news by earthquakes and shootings every day almost that we don't know what the next day is going to bring. We don't know what this afternoon is going to bring. Help us to be faithful in the time you give us. Help us to see our world, our families, our homes, our children, our sheds, our barns, our equipment. Help us to see that as all from you, all belonging to you, all for the cause of the gospel. And show us your purpose for each of us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, the chairs stay down today. We have a few.